All right. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, the class. We are um, going to de de deviate from the Romans classes that we've been doing on Wednesday nights at the CMI School of Christ, and we're going to begin to um, interject another lesson that I've been looking at lately on uh, different in different places and, um, on the podcast and, uh, on Sunday mornings when I get to share, but it has to do with a study that I started, um, probably back in the June conference. And that was a, a study on Psalms 119, where I looked at the Aleph and the Tav, which is the first and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet and how the Psalms 119 deals with um, the reality of the Aleph and the Tav because each segment of Psalms 119 deals with every letter of the alphabet, of course, beginning and ending with the first and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And Jesus comes um, in a couple of places in the New Testament is written of him. He is the Alpha and the Omega, which is the first and last letter of the uh, Greek alphabet. And if you um, look at that. It's it's speaking of the reality of the Aleph and the Tav. Uh, we did a bunch of teaching on that uh, on the podcast, and um, during that June conference, we introduced it. Today, what I want to share is something that's kind of an offshoot of that, still uh, dealing with the whole idea of Psalms one nineteen because of how Psalms one nineteen. If you go back and read it, uh, Psalms one nineteen begins by looking at and monitoring the recording guys, I'll take these off. They look kind of weird. Um, you will notice that the, um, Psalms 119 begins with blessed, blessed, um, you know, blessed are the undefiled who are in the way. Um, speaking of the, those who walk with the Lord and blessed, you know, it, it does that a couple of times and it says for they, um, do not commit iniquity. And when you read those words, um, the first thing that came to my mind was um, Matthew chapter five and the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And uh, so I have, I have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes for some time now. And I want to begin to share that with you on these classes here at the uh, CMI School of Christ. I think it's beneficial to understand the um, the intention of Jesus here on the Sermon on the Mount because of how um, wrong we have been in our understanding of this wonderful portion of Scripture, and you know, my idea has always been wrong when I would approach these verses. And that's why for many years I've steered clear of Matthew chapter five, this part anyway, um, where Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit and, and all of the things that he says, because in my mind, and I think uh, in most Christians mind, when we read these words on the sermon on the Mount, we 
we interpret them and we give them a particular emphasis or a particular uh, twisting to where they're instructional on how to live a, as a Christian, how to be, how to act. Uh, they are, uh, for lack, well, I guess a way we could say it is they are teachings, moral teachings, ethical teachings for the Christian and how to live, how to conduct yourself and the blessedness that comes if you conduct yourself in that way. And honestly, if we understand the things that he is actually presenting, we will understand how truly um, impossible it is for us to live it, to be this, to, to, to conduct ourselves in this manner. Because again, um, he is speaking not of just ethical teachings and morality. He's speaking of a manner of life that could only come in with the coming in of the messianic kingdom, meaning these realities that he is presenting, the blessedness that he is presenting here is only available to those who would receive their Messiah. And we'll talk about that as we go, but these are, these are not just ethical teachings for the believer, because what we do is we believe that. And then we go about trying to live this way and poor in spirit. We're going to begin with that. Poor in spirit is one of those ways we try to conduct ourselves and try to be, you know, as humble as possible. Meek and meek is another one that we're going to cover. And basically it becomes a practice of hypocritic, hypocritical actions. You know, it's a way to practice um, imitating Jesus, trying to live as good and holy. So men will look at us and say, wow, that's, that's really good but it's not, these are not moral ethical teachings. This is a, this is basically Jesus describing the blessedness of those who would receive the kingdom of God, that he has come the new covenant that he has come to bring in, in the, in himself, that his coming is the ushering in of the great fullness that was promised by the prophets that was pointed to by the law and for those who would come to him in a particular way, in a particular manner and receive in and as him, the fullness and the fulfillment of what the law promised, but could not provide in and of itself, but stood as a prophetic finger pointing to its conclusion. He comes as that conclusion on this Mount, um, and teaches them and, and offers to them the blessedness of a new and living way, a righteousness that actually fulfills that, uh, that is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you'll take this on into chapter five and what he talks about, uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, what he's offering to these people is not another uh, law by which you conduct yourselves, but a righteousness that is contained in an eternal life that God himself bestows in grace and the blessedness of those who would receive that life. And it, because in that life, as Paul says in the Romans eight that we've been covering in that life is the righteousness of the law 
fulfilled. It's called the law of the spirit of life. This is what he's offering. This is what he's bringing in in, the, in this moment in time, um, speaking to these particular people at this particular time. He is offering to them that reality, not just external commandments, as he'll go on and talk about, but a heart condition, an internal state of perfectness, perfect blessedness that is only brought in in the presence of Jesus Christ. It's not something we can learn and imitate. It's not something we can do in ourselves. This is a life that is the doing of it within us. It's a life that does the work, not just demands the work. So we're going to read this um, in Matthew chapter five. If you'll turn there and you have to, excuse me, my allergies are giving me a fit today. Could be all the sawdust. I've been putting a wall up here in this room and <laughs> it could be that. All right. Um, Matthew chapter five, verse one, and we're going to go through verse three here. And that's what we'll cover in this class from the King James, uh, Matthew five, one and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. This is important. The setting is important here. He went up into a mountain, and when he was set, set down, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I love the way this is written, uh, because as contrary to what most people try to do with these words, poor in spirit, it actually demonstrates, shows, conveys the destitution of mankind before the coming of this Messiah, before his coming and offering to them life and that more abundantly, uh, offering to them righteousness fulfilled in the himself as himself. The state of the believer is this, poor in spirit, okay? Um, in fact, let me read this in the um, Kenneth Weiss expanded translation of the New Testament. Uh, he says, having seen the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he had seated himself, his pupils came to him. And having opened his mouth, he went, to teaching them saying spiritually prosperous are the destitute and the helpless in the realm of the spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You, you see that spiritually prosperous are the destitute and helpless in the realm of the spirit. Now I want you to understand what he's saying here. This is not him telling them you have to act like you're poor in spirit. You have to come with this, this act of humility. No, he is presenting to them a state in which those who will come and receive this kingdom of heaven and the blessedness of it, he's telling them, this is your state. But if you would come as poor in spirit and come to me, I will make you prosperous in spirit. I will, I will overcome your destitution and your helplessness. I will be your help in this by overcoming your internal uh, situation, your internal state, 
and I will bring a blessedness of the kingdom of heaven into you. I will bring the riches of my grace into you. But you, when you come to me, what you bring to me is a destitution and a helplessness in the realm of the spirit. Meaning when it comes to matters of the spirit, those who are coming to him, again, his audience, his disciples are there and the multitude. And these are Jews uh, to listen to him. And he is offering to these the reality of a new covenant, new and living way, the, the, the fulfillment of the law, not just the, another law to live by, but the law's very substance living in you. This is his offer to them. This is the kingdom he is coming to uh, usher in and bestow to the souls who will come and receive him. But what he's doing is showing them their, their state. And if you'll come to me in that condition, I will offer to you and give to you, provide to you in grace, bestow a state of blessedness in the kingdom of heaven, the, not in the future, but I will bring spiritual prosperity into your soul where when you come to me, absent of me, deficient of my presence, you are destitute and helpless when it comes to matters of the spirit. And we see these things in, in, in uh, Romans 7 where Paul is trying his, trying his best and the, every attempt he runs into the wall of his own destitution and corruptibility and helplessness in the realm of the spiritual things because he does say the law is spiritual, meaning the law was always uh, in view of a spiritual conclusion. But I cannot bring that conclusion. Well, what, what Jesus here is offering to these assembled on the mountain is the conclusion that no law of observation could ever bring about. Now, let me read this. This is from the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary. It says, when surrounded by multitudes of eager listeners of every class from all quarters, solemnly seated on a mountain on purpose to teach them for the first time the great leading principles of his kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom he's bringing in. Okay. But since the Jewish mind, because it's important to understand the Jewish mind is what is being affected here at this point in time in this setting because he's offering to those to whom he come. He came to his own, right? Uh, to the Jew first. He came to confirm the covenant to them first, and, or to co confirm the covenant to them. So he is dealing with a mindset of the Jews. And But listen to the commentary. Since the Jewish mind had been long systematically perverted on the subject of human duty and consequently of sin by the breaching of duty, and under such teaching, teaching had grown obtuse and unspiritual and self-satisfied. That's a pharisaical idea, right? They thought themselves holy and righteous based upon their observance of the law. But it was the dictate of wisdom first that he'd lay broad and deep the foundation of all revealed truth and hold forth the great principle of true acceptable righteousness in sharp contrast with the false teaching to which the people talking about the Jewish people were in bondage. Now, the reason they were in bondage to this, they were trying to apply a, a law declaring perfection to that 
which was imperfect, man himself, his deeds, his works. The weakness of the law was that it was weak due to the flesh because the flesh could never bring about completion, could not apply the law and bring about completion. In the Robertson's word study, I think it's also um, important. As I said, the setting here is important. It states that Jesus went into a mountain or hill to speak to those who were gathered around him. His disciples came also. And some give great significance to the setting as I think is, is, is necessary. And it's mostly due to the definite article that is present in the Greek here. So, in fact, it's not there in most translations. They don't translate the definite article. But when they're speaking of uh, a mountain, in most of the places, the definite article there, the mountain, because what they're showing is a great significance to the setting of this mountain. In fact, uh, Delich of the Delich commentary calls the, calls the Mount of Beatitudes here that he's sitting on the Sinai of the New Testament. And what does he mean by that? Well, this setting is demonstrating the coming in of a greater reality. The law of the New Testament, the law of life. This is now the Mount Sinai of the New Testament where Jesus is not saying thou shalt not, thou shalt not. He's saying, if you come to me, I will, I will bring into your soul what is impossible for you because of your condition. But just as he said to the Pharisees or said concerning the Pharisees, if you would confess your blindness, I would heal you. But they called their blindness sight and they called their, their, their sin righteousness. They called evil good and good evil. And that's the truth that he is coming to offer to them but they are in love with the, with the delusion of self-righteousness. <clears throat> so to me, it's a beautiful thought because here we see Jesus declare the law of his life here in, in Matthew 5 and declare the fact that those who come under the rule of his kingdom or his headship, will have bestowed to them the glorious benefits of spiritual life, the, the, the kingdom of heaven in its fullness, which the former system, the system that came to fulfill, he came to fulfill in substance, kept at a distance. He's coming to bring us nigh. He's come to bring into our souls what the law and all of its requirements kept at a distance from us as souls. And when you see further in this proclamation, it makes perfect sense. These are not instructions on ethical living. It is the declaration of the blessedness of those who partake of his life within. And I remind you of the purpose of this exposition as said in the commentary. It is to lay broad the foundation of all revealed truth and duty and hold forth the great principles of true acceptable righteousness to declare true and acceptable righteousness to be bestowed to the poor, the weak ones who are hungering and thirsting for it. When we get into that, you'll see it's very clear there. See, he talks about the Jewish system that it perverted minds into a sense of duty 
and a perverted man's human, human religious duty. Well, unfortunately, that's not just a Jewish uh, fallacy. That's not just something the Jewish mind has, has thought. That has come into the Christian community just as strongly as it ever did the Jewish community. And all we do is teach Christian duty, religious duty, and we teach obligation of religious, of a religious sort. And that's what we deem as holiness or righteousness, depending on how well you carry out that duty. I'm telling you, that's not what this is. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is not I. What sense of personal duty and responsibility is that? Not I, but Christ liveth in me. What that does is demonstrate the fact that you cannot carry out any religious or Christian duty per, at all. You have no power in this. You are destitute and helpless in matters of the spirit, as we just read. But Jesus comes to the dead, to the helpless, to the weak, and offers himself as the as the fullness that they are incapable of reaching in their own power. He comes as the righteousness that exceeds even that of the Pharisees who tried daily and do it and, and, and are zealous after it. Why? Because righteous men was never God's aim. One righteous man was always God's view. The grace of God is that that righteous one now resides in the soul. That's the reality he's offering to these who are assembled on the Sinai of the New Testament, not saying to them, you shall not, you shall not, which we know through earlier teachings that that has, that isn't even what Jesus or what God says to uh, Israel at the Mount Sinai. It's actually, you do not. You do not, not telling them you better not do this or you're going to get killed. He's saying, this is not who you are. <coughs> Israel is my son. Remember, there's the heading under which God ordered these people's steps. This is the heading. This is the garment he clothed them in. And the law was no different. The law was no different. The law said to them, you are found in a righteousness that is not of your own. And here on the Mount of the Beatitudes or this New Testament Sinai, he is offering to them that reality in truth. He is offering to them who would come as those who are poor and destitute in themselves and come to him to receive in and as him the sufficiency that they were destitute of. So he is offering to them what the law promised in its fullness, what the law declared in its completeness. You do not commit adultery. You do not take the Lord's name in vain. All the things. It's about a nature that he was declaring and clothing them in with the law. The law was actually the grace of God in a picture, if we understand it. And we can't go off into that or we'll, we'll get lost into that. Knowing there was only one law for all people, the same thing as grace. There's one, one life living in many. And that life brings in with 
its presence, the moment it comes in, that life brings righteousness, holiness, and the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus here is offering to these who are assembled. When we read these things about the kingdom of heaven and blessed, we have made these things futuristic in their attainment, but we continue to make them, although futuristic in the, in the attainment of the blessed hope, of the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven, we say, oh, that's a future promise. Man, it'd be great one day when that happens. So we've made it futuristic in the actual attainment of the blessing, but we've made the requirement that seems to be there present in its requirement, present in its command leaving people having to try their best, do their thing, try to be perfect, do your works. And though it sets forth principles that will become universal only during the millennial, that's what we think. We think Jesus expected the believers in his day to follow these principles perfectly when the blessedness of it would only be universally received and available during this millennial reign? Are we, are we nuts? That makes no sense. No, he is offering to them in this reality, in this setting, what we now presently have as believers. That's the thing we have to keep in, before us as we read these things. He's not telling Christians another step to return to receive blessedness or another step in their process of becoming holy. He is telling these people who are under a system of laws and commandments that if you'll come to me in your state of destitution, your helplessness, if you'll come to me knowing that you have no power in these things, I will bring into your soul all the things that these laws and commandments all the things they kept you destitute of, I will fulfill them in you. So he's not talking to Christians because these are the realities that we as new, as born again believers actually possess. And that's why I say it's a robbery. It's a crime when people put these things off into the future for a believer, because the believer receives these blessed realities, the blessedness that he's presenting here, the, the believer receives that at the moment of new birth. We'll talk about it. You'll see it as we go. And you'll also understand that the attributes here, the blessedness and the attributes here are not realized in completion due to the qualities of the individual. That's how we like to preach it. All of the characteristic enjoyments here explained are exclusively declared to be the blessed possession of those who are the subjects of the kingdom that Christ establishes in himself. Look at what Paul writes, um, in first Corinthians chapter one, and we'll see kind of the same thing said here as Jesus is presenting to the poor and destitute in spirit from the King James, it reads this way. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 26, for we, for we see, for you see your calling brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, 
not many noble are called, but God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, the base things of the world. The things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, let's, let's read this in the King Kenneth Weiss translation. For take a good look at your divine summons in the salvation, brethren, that not many wise men according to human standards, not many men of dignity and power, not many who are of royal or aristocratic lineage are given that divine summons in the salvation. God selected out for himself those individuals among the world of sinners characterized by the aforementioned foolishness in order that he might put to confusion those who are wise and those individuals among the world of sinners characterized by weakness. There it is. Weakness, helplessness, destitution. God selected for himself in order that he might put to confusion those who are characterized by strength and those individuals among the world of sinners who are not of royal or noble ancestry, but belong to the common people, those who are utterly despised, God selected for himself. The aforementioned classes of individuals looked upon as non-entities in order that he might deprive of force and influence and power those who actually think themselves to be somewhat. That's the thing he's just uh, declaring here in, in Matthew 5. You think you're something? Because he's talking to people who may think they're righteous, that they're not poor in spirit, that they're not destitute in the things of the spirit, that they've actually arrived at a, at a state of righteousness because they have the law. I mean, you see the same thing in Romans 3, that the law is so that every mouth would be shut and they all would be guilty in the sight of God. That means destitute, weak, corrupt. To me, this is a beautiful presentation of the level ground upon which we all stand. That's what, that's what Paul is doing here. He's not saying rich people can't be saved. He's saying it doesn't matter if the world sees these people and holds them at a higher esteem, sees these people and holds them at nothing. We're all the same in the sight of God. None are called out due to any nobility in themselves. None are called because they're great. All men, no matter their perception, the world's perception of them are on the same ground. All men are on the same ground of poor and weak and destitute in the matters of spiritual attainment, which leaves all men in the need of the grace that he is offering at this very moment in this very message. And this is the thing we're seeing presented in Matthew 5, a, a condition of spiritual blessedness offered to them that leaves no ground of boasting in self, but in the Lord who has bestowed all things spiritual to us who come to him impotent and understand our impotence in the light of spiritual things and come to him saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? Again, 
This is not about a believer saying, I need to live better, live holier. God, will you help me? This is about one who is destitute, meaning he does not have the spirit of life dwelling in him. He does not have the law of life fulfilling in him the law of the, the righteous requirements of the law. So he must come to receive the sufficiency of another man to overcome the weakness destitution that we all have by a natural birth. I believe understanding is significant. What we're going to see in this consideration of the message of Matthew 5 is what is titled by many, again, this is called the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to see here an echo or better a substantiation of what we talk, what we're going to talk about in Psalms 119. Because we are talking here about coming to the full end, the full stop of God's testimony in the Aleph and the Tav, the I am, the Alpha and the Omega. It's about being a true doer of the word, meaning one who comes to, to that which the law in itself could not do, comes to the one that the law in and of itself could not provide, and the manner in which that takes place, or the characteristic in which we all come, the Jew first and those, the Greek also. And it's said another way because we're speaking here about the law in every jot and tittle possessing an ultimate divinely designed intention. And Paul states it in this way. In First Timothy chapter 1, he says in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral, um, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. The law is good. The law is good. Why? Because it has a good intent. It has a good conclusion. Its intention and conclusion is good. Not just good like we throw it out. Boy, that's good. No, the good, the good thing that God had always intended for the soul of men to always be the in. Have inhabit the soul of man, the soul of those who would receive by faith. The law is good. What does it mean if they use it lawfully, though? In its lawful place, namely, as a means to produce righteous men attempting at a higher perfection by, by their works but allowing the law to do the very thing it was intended to do. The law is good when it is used in accordance to its intended purpose. 
if it is permitted to do what it was designed of God and implemented to do, not to make righteous men, but to bring us to the one righteous man, to bring us to Christ as a schoolmaster for righteousness to be our portion to any measure or degree. And actually, if he's in us, is to the full measure and the full degree. The law was intended to bring us to the Aleph and the Tav, the I am that I am. Its intention is to bring us to the concluding object of its rudimentary presentation. As Jesus says in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And when he speaks to the Pharisees, again, just like the setting here, he says, they are they that testify of me. That's what it means to use it lawfully. Anything else is to use the law unlawfully, to use it against its intention, to try to utilize it in a way that God did not intend, meaning to make you holy, to make you righteous. And Paul went against, hit that wall constantly as we read in Romans 7. And as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to understand Jesus is presenting here to these listeners a certain posture of heart, not that they have to conjure up, but actually something they already possess, poor in spirit, meek. In other words, these, are, these things are descriptive of a specific condition and means by which the kingdom of God is received a condition that you have to confess to bring that poor destitute soul to the one who can heal it of its destitution can heal it of its corruption can bring true absolute healing and usher into that soul every blessed thing, every blessed and divine reality, so that again, as we've read, no flesh could glory in the place where he has established his presence. This is what he's offering, the spiritual realities of the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual realities of the new covenant, and he's doing so in himself. Think not, he'll say further on in this very chapter, I have come to disannul and do away and destroy the law and the prophets. No, I came to fulfill it. I came as the substance which brings fullness to these testimonies. Come to me. Now, let's go back to Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, excuse me. The word blessed here is important because, you know, we think about blessed and the church world has unfortunately taken the word blessed and they've made it into external things, luxurious things, you know, material things. I was blessed by the Lord. He gave me a new car, a new house, a job. All that's great. And I do not doubt at all that God has his hand in those things that God can offer to all of us and help us in these ways and, and bless us in these ways. If we want to use that term, 
but that's not the blessing that's offered here because even the word in the Greek speaks more of what is inward instead of what is outward. Speaks as in a lofty sense of blessedness, not just external uh, temporal blessedness. Because the things that we talk about being blessed with are things that can be gone tomorrow. We're talking about the blessed condition and state of being, realizing the person of Christ within, coming to the substance, the true character depicted by the law, but untainted through the law. Untainted because the law in and of itself did not have a part in bringing this about. He does it in his person, in his presence. So where is this poverty? Where is this destitution, this helplessness truly? Well, he, he defines the realm in which it is. It is in the spirit. And that removes things from a merely concrete set of external circumstances. And being in desperate need outwardly, it moves the phrase into internal. It makes it an internal thing. It is in the spirit. It fixes us here to a particular realm of being, those who are in desperate and deepest consciousness of realization that they have an entire spiritual need. Who will deliver me from this condition of death? Who will deliver me from this destitution and this state of helplessness? I've done everything I could do, and that's what Jesus here is offering. A divine alleviation. from all fruitless effort because he brings into the soul what your effort could not accomplish. And he answers the cry of the soul, whether we are cognizant that that is the cry of the soul, he answers it with his own life being present comes in in his fullness and brings into the soul a righteousness heretofore impossible for men to attain. The conviction before God, we're void of everything. That's what poor in spirit is talking about. Before God, we're void of everything. We are deficient in everything. We have nothing to bring to the table. That we are, or the riches of the, of the things of God are inaccessible to us in ourselves which is why he is calling to them to come and receive in him the blessedness of the kingdom. The poor in spirit speaks of our innate internal bankruptcy, our spiritual insufficiency that depends entirely upon the bestowal of grace through an imputation of God's righteousness, not an exercise of flesh that produces it, but the imputation of God's righteousness. Why? Because we are bankrupt and have no funds available. And while others may walk in a vain show of external things, an imagination of righteousness, Jesus comes to them and says, if you are poor in spirit, if you are destitute in the matters of spiritual things, come to me and I will bring into your soul the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven.
a, an overcoming, fulfilling righteousness. This is from the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary. God wants nothing from us as the price of his gifts. We have but to feel our universal destitution and cast ourselves upon his compassion. So then poor in spirit are thus enriched with the fullness of Christ, which is the kingdom in its substance. That's what he's offering. But again, you come knowing your poverty is internal. Your destitution is a condition that can only be overcome by his presence, not by your effort. But when you do such, you come and receive in him a blessed state a blessed condition. That only his presence and his kingdom within can convey and confer. To be poor in spirit is to be sensible that we are sinners and have no righteousness of our own. Again, this is talking about those under the law, those who have not been born again. Do not Take this beyond new birth and think these are ethical teachings of how to be more born again or how to be more Christian. No. It's about a state that is overcome by the blessedness of being born of him and receiving in our souls his kingdom. Remember, when you're born again, you receive the kingdom of God. It is to come to him willing to be saved only by the riches of grace and mercy. That's it, because that's what we have to have, the grace and mercy of God. It's like a blind man crying out to Jesus, right? Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. There it is. There's the cry of the soul who needs to be touched by the Messiah who needs to be touched by the Messiah. That's, that's King of David or son of David. Jesus is presenting here and we'll, we'll bring this to a conclusion. Jesus is presenting the blessedness enjoyed the blessed state of being enjoyed by those who will partake of the kingdom of God that he is ushering in the kingdom of righteousness. He's come to establish not only in their midst, but in their hearts. And you'll recall when Jesus speaks of hearts being far from me, or God speaks, you know, with their mouth, they worship me, but their heart is far from me. And you have to understand this is not merely a presentation of obstinance toward God. It is speaking of an innate separation that forfeited God's ability to affect the soul of man and to bring the blessings of spiritual life into their inner being, because all they could do was worship him from afar. That presentation, that declaration of the prophet was basically a declaration, a promise that one day the heart would not have to be far from him, but would be indwelt by him. I'll just say it this way, and then we'll conclude. Being poor in spirit is the condition of mankind from the moment of natural birth. It is the condition of internal bankruptcy, poverty, and it calls for the wealth of another man who will impute and give unto that withered soul out of the abundance of his own kindness. 
The poverty of spirit is a condition that requires another substance to come. It warrants for those in such a state to call their perceived gain absolute vanity and bankruptcy and thus come to the to partake of the one who comes to bring the kingdom into the soul. And that's why all of these things are declarations of an internal nature and state. And it's due to the fact that he has come to those and he's presenting himself to those in these settings that we're reading to those who find great fleshly confidence in their observation of laws and rituals and who think themselves rich, but are not rich, but are truly internally spiritually impoverished. Again, this is not speaking of us in Christ who have to demonstrate this poor and, 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 and uh, meet demeanor or a false show of humility. We must understand our internal impoverishment in Adam, under the headship of Adam, our continued state of insufficiency without the indwelling presence of Christ is our life. our absolute impoverishment when the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit is absent. And while we do understand this is always the condition of every soul, poor, destitute, every soul, even the born again soul, it is the condition of the soul. That's why that soul must be born again, because it's at that moment that he overcomes and overrides the insufficiency of the soul that he inhabits. He provides a fullness that soul could not have and never becomes the possession of that soul independently. It is always in the soul and governs the soul because he's present. But that soul is always in a state of poverty if he's not present with the riches that he is. That soul is always in eternal need, perpetual need of his presence to bring with himself and establish a continuance in that soul of blessed with all spiritual blessings. The journey of those who have heeded this invitation who have received the blessing of the kingdom and be, have been delivered from this state of internal poverty is one of actually being carried by the spirit of truth to discover the unimaginable depths of the riches of Christ, the riches of his grace and the glory, the, the breadth and length of the kingdom of heaven. So that's just a introduction to this wonderful portion of scripture. And I say wonderful now having for a long time stayed away from it. Um, these are not instructions. These are declarations of a reality offered by God, the Messiah himself to those who will receive him and come to find in him what they cannot find in themselves or their observance of the law. Study this with me. We're going to be on this for a little while, and um, I appreciate you guys being there and listening to these classes uh, when I do it or others. Thanks for um, watching.
Until next time, guys, I appreciate it.